The sermon text is the first lesson, which is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came and told him this. There were two men in a city. One was rich and one poor. The rich man had a large number of flocks and herds. The poor man did not own anything except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He raised it so that it grew up together with him and his children. It ate from his food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. When a traveler came to the rich man, the rich man was unwilling to take an animal from his flock or from his herd to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. So he took the lamb from the poor man and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger flared up against that man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this is as good as dead. In place of that lamb, he will restore four lambs because he did this and had no pity. Nathan told David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave the house of your master to you, and I gave the wives of your master into your embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If this was too little, I would have added even more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife as your own wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So now the sword will not depart from your house forever, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is what the Lord says. Look, I am raising up disaster against you from your own house. Right in front of your eyes, I will take your wives and give them to your neighbor, and he will lie down with your wives in the sight of the sun. Because you acted in secret, I will do this in front of all Israel in broad daylight. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord himself has put away your sin. You will not die. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Spring was the time for kings to go out and fight with their army. This particular spring, David sends out his army without him, and he stays home back in Jerusalem. And you could call that laziness. You could also call it dereliction of duty because in those days, kings were expected not only to go out and fight with their army, but to fight in the front, in the vanguard of the battle. But David doesn't do that. He stays behind in Jerusalem, and he gets himself into a lot of trouble. One day on the roof of his palace, David looks out across the way, and he sees beautiful bathing Bathsheba whose husband, by the way, Uriah, is one of the soldiers out fighting David's battles while David has stayed behind in Jerusalem. And when David sees Bathsheba, he commits a couple more sins. He covets another man's wife, and he lusts after Bathsheba in his heart. So those of you keeping score at home, we're now up to three. We've got laziness, lust, and coveting. And then David summons Bathsheba to his bedchamber, and he adds number four, which is physical adultery. Well, Bathsheba sends word to David that she is expecting a child. And now the scheming begins. Now the lying and the misleading starts. David, he needs to cover his tracks on this, make sure his people will never find out what has happened. So 
he summons Uriah home from the battlefield to Jerusalem, and he is hoping that while Uriah is home in Jerusalem, he will find comfort in his wife's arms, and the whole world will be fooled into thinking that the child belongs to Uriah and not David. But that doesn't work, because Uriah is too honorable for that. He is not going to go to his wife while his fellow soldiers are out fighting and dying in battle. So instead, he sleeps way out at the city gate, and everybody can see him out there. So David's plan to deceive his people has failed. So now it's time for plan B, which is a whole lot darker still. David sends Uriah back to the battle. Exceptionally cruel thing he does. He sends Uriah with his own death sentence in his hand. It's a message for the general. Uriah, of course, doesn't get to read it. He hands it to the general, and the message says, the next time you have a battle with the Ammonites, I want you to put Uriah way out front, and I want you to have all the other Israelite soldiers withdraw all at once and make sure he gets killed. The general follows orders, and essentially David has murdered Uriah by using an enemy army to cut him down. Now, if there were a category in the Guinness Book of World Records for most sins committed by one guy in one Bible story, David would certainly be a contender in this story. He would be challenged only by a few people in the book of Judges. If you ever read the book of Judges, brace yourself because it's really bad. But there's one more sin in this story that might put David over the top and give him the championship. And it is a sin that you don't see mentioned explicitly in that first part of the story, and you don't really catch it until later, when the prophet Nathan, sent by the Lord, courageously takes his life into his hands, confronting David over these sins that David has committed. And that's when the other sin becomes apparent. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave the house of your master to you, and I gave the wives of your master into your embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If this was too little, I would have added even more. Why do you think the Lord feels the need to remind David that it is he, the Lord, and not David, who has made David so great? What kind of person needs a reminder that it's actually the Lord who makes or breaks them. It's the proud. See, every other sin David commits in this story, you can see them in succession, dropping like dominoes. One leads to another. But pride is like the invisible one that's over the top of them all and driving them all. Why is it that nowhere along the line there, David ever felt the need to pump the brakes and stop and humble himself and confess? Why didn't he say, whoa, whoa, I've been really lazy here, sending out my troops to fight for me, staying behind in Jerusalem. I really ought to humble myself before the Lord and confess my sins. Or later, why doesn't he say, okay, now this has really gone too far. Now I'm lusting after another man's wife. I need to come clean with the Lord and stop it right here. And even after a child comes into the world, not even then does he say, I've got some serious confessing to do. I need to confess to Uriah, I need to confess to my people, and most importantly, I need to confess to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. Why doesn't that happen anywhere along the line? Well, King David is a mighty man. He's been a great leader for a long time. He's a king. He's crazy rich. 
He's a ladies' man. The ladies have never been able to keep their hands off of King David. And all of that has caused David to lift himself up in pride. And that pride is not only wrong in and of itself, but it's leading David down the path of spiritual destruction because it's stopping him from humbling himself and confessing his sin to the Lord. Now when Nathan comes and confronts David over his sin, it's not just the testimony to how brave Nathan is. Definitely is. He's got some serious steel in his guts, Nathan, to confront the king the way he does. But more importantly, it's a testimony to how much the Lord loves King David. Because he's not giving up on him. He's calling him to repentance one more time, very directly, very bluntly. And Nathan does it by telling David the story of a rich man who robs a poor man of the one thing that poor man really loved in the world. And it's really important to understand this whole story and everything that's going on here to watch David's reaction very carefully and listen very carefully to what he says about the man in this story. David's anger flared up against that man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this is as good as dead. Of course, unknowingly, David's just condemned himself to death because he is the man in that story. Not only is he the man in that story, he's way worse than the man in that story. He didn't just take a guy's little lamb. He took his wife, and then he took his life. If the guy in that story deserves to die, David deserves to die way more. But then, with Nathan's simple condemnation, you are the man, all of David's pride finally flies away Finally, David humbles himself and confesses. And it's a good practical point for us to notice that David does not even attempt to list all of the sins that he has committed. The Lord already knows what they are. And when we confess our sins, we don't have to try to list them all either. If there is one that is really bothering you, plaguing your conscience, it can be very helpful spiritually to lay that sin out before the Lord specifically. But he knows what our sins are. So David confesses very simply... I have sinned against the Lord. But now, based on David's own assessment of what should happen to that man in that story, what should happen to David now? What does he deserve? But instead of giving David what he deserves, the Lord answers his confession with life. The Lord himself has put away your sin. You are not going to to die. Now you notice a couple other important things here that Nathan does not impose like a waiting period for forgiveness. He doesn't go away for a few days and make David sweat it out and wonder if he is forgiven and then come back. And also there are no conditions on the Lord's forgiveness. There's nothing like, okay, the Lord will forgive you in his good time, but first you better donate 10,000 shekels of gold to the temple and you better fast for a couple weeks. As soon as David confesses his sins, the Lord's forgiveness comes Full and fast and free. Now you might think you don't have very much in common with King David. And you're right, you don't have very much in common with King David. You're separated from King David by like 3,000 years, 10,000 miles, a whole language and culture. But there's one thing all of us have in pride, at least in common with David at least a little bit, and that's some pride. You may not be proud of how wealthy you are. You may not be proud that you're a king. 
You may not be proud that you're extremely attractive and the members of the opposite sex just can't keep their eyes off of you, but we all have pride in our hearts. And I think the kind of pride that most Christians struggle with these days is more like the pride of the Pharisee in the temple in the parable that Jesus told. It's pride that we're better than other people. Ah, I'm not. I'm not one of those people who openly advocates for immoral behavior. I know the difference between a male and a female. I'm really something. I know the Bible. I believe in the Lord, not like those people. You know, sometimes we even direct this pride at our fellow Christians. I go to church all the time. I'm not like one of these Christmas Easter types, people who hardly ever go to church. I'm there pretty much every week, you know, pretty much, better than most people. And I, I can do basic math. I know what the total offerings of my congregation are, and I know what I give, and I, I must give way more than most of those people. You see, just like King David, whatever you're proud of, whatever the source of the pride, it can lead you just barreling into sin after sin without ever stopping and seeing the need to confess, right? I mean, what, what do I need to confess? Why should I humble myself before the Lord? I'm one of the good ones, right? I don't need to do that. But what we need to understand is that you and I, each one of us is also the man in Nathan's little parable. So you never murdered to cover up an affair, right? I hope you haven't. If you have, you should turn yourself into the authorities immediately. But if you haven't done that, we've all lusted after other people. We've all made mistakes and then did some fibbing, you know, to cover up the mistakes that we've made. You never sent out an army to fight without you, but we've all been lazy with the gifts and resources that God has given us. And you never stole a person from somebody, okay? But we've all stolen at least something from other people. And like the man in Nathan's story, what does that leave us deserving from God? What did King David deserve? And that's exactly the truth that God reveals to us in his word. See, we might have this pride that makes us think these sins are small and they don't really need to be confessed and we're some of the good people, but every sin, all sin, leaves you deserving death from God. Now, how does the Lord react when David finally humbles himself and confesses? How does the Lord then deal with that sin that has been confessed to him? Well, he doesn't respond by saying, oh, no big deal. We'll just pretend it didn't happen. No, sin does happen, and when it happens, it's a, it's a big deal. It is eternally offensive to a holy God. And God also responds to David's sin by dealing out some severe earthly consequences. And that happens sometimes when we commit sins. God disciplines us with some heavy consequences sometimes, so we'll learn our mistakes and not repeat those wrongs. And in David's case, the consequences are really awful. Uh, for one thing, David's power and prestige as king of Israel is never going to rise to the same level. From here on out, it's just a slow slide downhill to the end of his reign. And the other consequence is way worse than that. It's the baby boy that is going to be born to Bathsheba and David. The Lord will call that little boy home to heaven very soon after he is born. But when, when sin is humbly confessed to the Lord, he doesn't just pretend it doesn't happen, and he doesn't say there will never be any consequences. 
What he does do with our sins, though, in the words of Nathan the prophet, is the Lord himself puts our sin away. So this son, born to Bathsheba and David, will go home to heaven very soon after he is born. David will have more sons, many more descendants, and one of them will be called the son of David, the title for the Messiah. His name will be the son of David. His name will also be Jesus because he comes to save us from our sins, to put our sins away. He comes in total humility, with no pride at all. He lowers himself and comes down into this world and saves us. And then the son of David lives his entire life without a single trace of pride or any of the other sins that pride leads us into. And it's necessary for sinful people like you and me to humble ourselves and confess our sins. But if you read all four accounts of the son of David's life in the four Gospels, you will never once find him confessing his sins because he doesn't have any to confess. The Lord puts away our sin by sending the son of David to be our righteousness. He puts away our sin by washing it away with Jesus' blood on the cross. And then God puts away the sin of each Christian personally by washing it away in the waters of baptism. Today, as we come and commune, the Lord will put away your sin again, forgive it, as you receive your Savior's body and blood. David's son, David's Lord, our Lord, our Savior, puts our sin away. So the Lord answers everyone who humbly confesses their sin, you will not die. The Lord himself has put away our sins. So the judgment that David deserved, death, passed him by. And he got life instead. And the judgment we deserve for our sin, death, passes us by. Even when we die, we live with our Lord in heaven. And on the last day, Jesus will raise our bodies again to life. The Lord has put away our sin, and we will not die. That truth is our life. And that truth is also an open invitation. It is an open invitation to confess all sin, every sin, all the time, every time. It is an open invitation to confess the sin we're born in, the sin we do, the good things we should do but we don't, even the sins we don't remember or we're not aware of. If you know that God answers your confession for Jesus' sake with life, why would you ever be proud and just keep going from sin to sin without confessing? You wouldn't. You won't. Not when you know what your sins deserve. Not when you know what the Lord has done to put them away. And not when you know that he answers your confession with life. You know that you will confess, I have sinned against the Lord. And you will hear him answer, I myself have put away your sin. You will not die. Amen.